Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. So a warm welcome to this Grounds for Peace podcast, a series that is part of Project Zion. Uh, we're, today we're asking the question, what is the significance of Nakba Day for Palestinians and peace in the Middle East? In, in our conversation today about Israel-Palestine, it's very important we start by defining what we mean by Zion. Zion has different meanings for different groups. I want to explain uh, what Zion means for Community of Christ. Um, Community of Christ is a religious movement that began in 1830 in the United States. Um, Zion was the kingdom of God on earth, a, a reality of justice and peace. And today we might say that Zion is the renewing and greening of the earth to bless all generations. It's about embracing the worth of all persons, no exceptions, and working to end all oppression, including racism, bigotry, sexism, poverty, and war. So we want to be clear about our understanding of Zion so you're comfortable because it's a loaded term. If we were to use biblical language, Zion, as I said, is the kingdom of God on earth for the blessing of all people. <clears throat> so Zion is a term we began using before Jewish or Christian Zionism meant a return of the Jewish people to Israel, to the Holy Land. However, we were also affected by Christian Zionism, something we're now repenting of because it's led to the marginalization and oppression of Palestinians. I'm your host, Andrew Bolton, currently living in Leicester, England, one of the most pluralistic cities in the world, and the only city in Europe with a non-white majority. Today's Grounds for Peace episode is a collaboration with our International Peace and Justice team for Community of Christ. And we're working for a just peace in Israel-Palestine, guided by our church's World Conference Resolution of 2016. So let's get down to the big question before us. What is the significance of Nakba Day for Palestinians and peace in the Middle East? So Bilal Al-Issa is a third generation Palestine, Palestinian living in Denmark, a board member of the Danish House in Palestine, DHIP. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. You. And then Daniel Banura, a Christian Palestinian from Bethlehem, born in Jerusalem, currently working intriguingly on a PhD on the Quran at Notre Dame in the United States. So Bilal and Daniel, a very warm welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being here. So Daniel, perhaps we could start with you. Can you please explain what is meant by Nakba and what happened to Palestinians in 1947 and 1948? Thank you, Andrew. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and to share this stage with uh, Bilal as, as we talk about the Nakba and the Palestinian narrative. This is an essential part of the Palestinian story, the Nakba, that is. Um, for the most part, in the West, uh, the story of the Palestinians, their, um, their evictions and their ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians and the suffering that they have gone through has been largely ignored. Um, and if not whitewashed and justified by the media, by um, the, the political system, by even uh, religious communities as well. So having these conversations are fundamental, I think, and important if we want to think about peace and think about justice and think about the end of the conflict and the, the violence in Palestine as well. But yes, we have to start from the beginning to try to understand what is happening today. And actually a lot of what is happening today, a lot of the, the reasons for the persistence um, of the conflict, um, uh, the kind of the complex and convoluted reality that we have right now in Palestine and Israel, goes back to the Nakba, goes back to that event. Um, the Nakba is the Arabic word for uh, catastrophe. Um, uh, and it refers to a specific uh, or a big uh, shift and transformation that happened to Palestine 
where Palestine historically before 1948 was predominantly uh, Arab and Palestinian, where you have uh, Palestinian Muslims, Palestinian Christians, and Palestinian Jews living in Palestine, as well as the newly arriving European Jews who arrived into Palestine from Europe, uh, driven by a movement of Zionism, and especially catalyzed by and, uh, in, and uh, sped by the rise of uh, anti-Semitism in Europe and the Holocaust and all the things that happened preceding 1948 that led to the mass exodus of Jews from Europe and other countries into Palestine. Now, specifically, the Nakba refers to the catastrophe that happened to the Palestinians as the war uh, began in May of 1948. Um, and even before the war in 1948, we can also talk about events that um, kind of set the stage for the mass exodus of Palestinians and the ethnic cleansing, what we call the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948 which are the number of like massacres committed against Palestinians in and attacks against the Palestinians in 1947 and so on. For example, I can think right now of the massacre of Balid al-Sheikh in 1947 um, and other kind of massacres committed uh, leading up to 1948. Now, 1948 in May, on, on May 14th of 1948, Israel, uh, like we said, the Jewish um, population of Palestine, the migrants from Europe, mostly from Europe, who came into Palestine eventually uh, independently declared their independence over Palestine. Um, and that uh, following the next day, that led to basically the, the war that existed there, what, what Israelis would call the war of independence and what Palestinians called the, the next the catastrophe, which eventually led to the, um, the killing and the, um, the eviction and also the escape of many Palestinians out of Palestine because of that war. And we're talking about uh, 500,000 to 700,000 Palestinians who were either evicted, ethnically cleansed, or just escaped uh, the violence that was happening um, then in 1948. So this is, we're talking about something that happened 74 years ago. Um, so that is kind of the Nakba, which is basically the whole depopulation uh, and dispossession of the Palestinians uh, in, 1940, in 1948 because of the war. What makes Nakba pertinent and what makes Nakba relevant for us today? This is not just an event in history, and we can talk about this. And I think Bilal has more to say about this than I have as someone who is from the West Bank, who was not really directly impacted by the Nakba, is that the Nakba is ongoing. It's not that the Nakba happened 74 years ago and it's over, but we still have the refugees. We have more than 5 million Palestinian refugees today who are still. Uh, living the, the outworkings of that Nakba, who are still not allowed to go back to their homeland, who are still refugees living in refugee camps. And the Palestinians are today still continue to be going through the Nakba of forced evictions, of ethnic cleansing in the Negev and in Jerusalem and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's, maybe that we can discuss that later during the podcast, but that's gonna, hopefully this is helpful in kind of placing the, or start as a starting point as we think about uh, the Palestinian story and the next So thank you, Daniel. So if I was to summarize, Nakba is catastrophe in Arabic, a disaster, and seven, up to 700,000 Palestinian Arabs were ethnically cleansed or had to flee um, from, from their homeland. Um, Bilal, your family is one of the Palestinian families that fled. And you're a third generation Palestinian living now in exile in Denmark. Can you please tell us something about your story? Hello, Mr. Andrew, and uh, thank you for inviting me here. I'm very happy to share the stage with uh, Danielle as well. Um, actually, my, my story is not uh, unique. It's basically the same story of hundreds, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, even millions of Palestinian refugees uh, living um, around the world. Um, I'm actually like uh, originally from a, a village called Al-Khalsa. It's on the far northeast of uh, the historic Palestine, very close to the Golan Heights and to the border to Lebanon. It's just very few kilometers from there. Uh, my grandparents, they used to live there uh, and uh, um, they, um, like I would uh, speak about maybe my grandfather who's still living today. Uh, 
Uh, he was about 18 years old when he fled uh, during the Nakba, the events of Nakba, where our village was ethnically cleansed from uh, the militias of uh, the Zionist militias of uh, Irgun and uh, and Haganah. Uh, they fled uh, to Lebanon. Uh, the people who were remained in this village were all killed. Um, so actually this village, uh, like uh, 540 other villages, they were completely ethnically cleansed. Um, they fled to Lebanon. My grandfather, he lived in Lebanon in a refugee camp to start with in Tal uh, Zatar for the most of the time. Uh, my parents are born in the camp of Tal Zatar. It's in Beirut, in Lebanon. And during the Lebanese civil war, uh, they have been victims of also a massacre and uh, an ethnic cleansing of uh, this camp. Um, after that, uh, they moved uh, to uh, different places in Lebanon and they ended up in a Shatila refugee camp. And uh, some of my family, one of my grandfathers, he was also one of the survivors of the Sabra and Shatila um, uh, massacre in uh, Lebanon. Well, I'm, I'm born in Lebanon uh, in 87. I was a little kid and because of uh, the civil war and also the Lebanese invasion that took place in 82, uh, we have, um, yeah, we have been forced to flee out of, uh, flee out of, uh, of Lebanon and uh, we ended up, uh, yeah, by accident in Denmark actually. Um, so yeah, I have been living in Denmark uh, since I was a little kid, um, and yeah, I am, a, as you say, a third generation refugee. My parents are refugees, my grandparents are refugees, my grandfather is still, he's 91 years old today, and he's still living in uh, the refugee camp of Shatila in Lebanon, um, and it's basically just maybe 150 kilometers away from his own village that he have not uh, been able to visit uh, for uh, 73, 74 years, since 1948. Um, and the thing is, the, like while I was living in Palestine and working in Palestine for some years, I have been visiting this village. I have also sent the videos and pictures and shared them with my grandfather. And um, the thing that uh, was very unique for me to experience was that he actually could, uh, that he's still um, remembering the places where people lived, where the mosque is, where the schools, where the school was, um, the cemetery for the family and for the, uh, the people in the village where they were, what happened, like uh, he, he still can uh, remember Remembered, and he have also lived in uh, and worked in Haifa for a few years. And when I shared with him some of um, pictures from the old city of Haifa, he could actually recognize them, like Wadi Nisnas and uh, the port of Haifa. So uh, for me, it was very great and such an experience to see. And it's also very hard to see. Uh, your own grandfather who was after like 74 years and he's still waiting to get back and he's still hoping for it you know um but as i said it's not a unique story it's actually basically the same story as millions of palestinians um yeah so thank you for sharing that so um you uh, you go back to palestine to visit family uh, no, I don't have any family in Palestine. Uh, actually, my whole family, they fled to uh, Lebanon in 1948. Okay. Nobody remained in Palestine. But uh, I, vis I, was, I traveled to Palestine and I was living in Palestine to work for a Danish NGO, the Danish house in Palestine. So I have actually lived in Palestine for, in Ramallah for, um, for five years. Okay, okay. Yeah. So um, Nakba Day is May the 15th every year and uh, events are remembered from 1947-48. But um, you were saying, Daniel, that um, 
Palestinians are still losing their homes. They're still being dispossessed. Um, so Nakba is something that continues today. So perhaps Bilal, from your, your work on the West Bank and Daniel, do you want to say a little bit about that? About the continuum? Yeah, I can start. And I kind of made the point about the ongoing Nakba um, for two things. For one, um, Bilal and the other Palestinians who are refugees today or their families uh, are still not allowed to go back to Palestine. The vast majority of the refugees, I think Bilal is an exception, who was able to make it to back to the West Bank or to Palestine in general. Um, the vast majority of them in refugee camps in Jordan, in Lebanon, and Syria are still not allowed to go back. Um, and if, you, if you've been to Palestine, if you've been to any of the refugee camps, you would see the, the key as a symbol as a, that is used by all refugees uh, to symbolize the homes that they have. So they locked up their homes. They thought they would come back within a few months or a few days or maybe a year or so. Um, so they still have their keys to their homes, but uh, they have no access to them. And now the homes were either uh, raised to the ground, like like what happened to Bilal's village in Al-Khalsa or like uh, different villages, Kufr Biraim or Kuntura uh, or other villages. Or now these homes are now occupied by, by Jewish Israelis. Like for example, we see this in, in Jerusalem specifically in other, and, and also other towns in what is today called Israel, like Haifa and Yafa and so on and so forth. Um, and now they've been replaced um, by, by Jewish populations. So it is, it is ongoing in the sense that the, the ethnic cleansing is still maintained and continues to exist. The Palestinians have not been given access back to the land. There is a right, what we call the right of return. Per international law, per UN resolutions, Palestinian refugees like Bilal and the 5 million Palestinians have a right guaranteed by international law to go back to the land. Now that law is not being um, taken seriously by Israel and has not been followed and Israel rejects that law because for them, um, it, it is an, it's a, what's, what Israel calls a demographic threat. It is a threat to the, what should be considered a very racist definition that Israel is a land, is a country for the Jewish people. So by giving Palestinians the right to their lands and to their homes, that is a threat to that racist ideology of what we call Zionism. So that's one aspect of the, ref the refugee problem is not being solved. And that is still continues to be the one, the biggest perhaps sticky issue when it comes to the peace process. Secondly, that ethnic cleansing continues, that the Nakba continues. I refer to what's happening to the Negev, to the desert in, in Palestine right now, in the south, southern Israel, where Palestinians have been, and for the last few months, been pushed, back, pushed out of their uh, villages uh, in the Negev. We're talking about the process of, uh, of the forced, quote-unquote, legal uh, dispossession and forced eviction of Palestinians uh, from different areas in what is in under Israeli control, especially East Jerusalem. So if you remember from the events of last year, uh, that the whole kind of war on Gaza began because of Israeli ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah. And that continues in Silwan, continues in many areas around East Jerusalem, and especially also in the old city where there's a, a legal effort um, and also a financial effort by Israel to de-Arabize uh, parts of Jerusalem by forcing the Palestinians out legally by following some kind of legal you know, gymnastics and procedures that Israel follows in its court, and also by financial incentives to give to basically incentivize Palestinians to buy, to sell, uh, sell their property, basically and pushing them out and then replacing the Palestinians with Jewish settlers. Uh, so it continues, the refugees continue to be refugees today. And Israel, uh, in many different ways, financial, legal, political, keeps forcing um, and de-Arabizing and uh, judifying, if you will, uh, Palestinian areas by moving the Palestinian populations and replacing that population in different ways with Jews. It happens, continues to happen in the old city, continues to happen in East Jerusalem and in different areas around, around Palestine. So thank you for sharing that awful story. Bilal, is there anything you want to add? 
Um, actually, like the the one thing, like uh, I totally agree with what Daniel says. The Nakba is still ongoing. We have seen it in the recent events, and uh, actually, these events that we saw in Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan and other places are just some of these uh, things that are going on. Um, there are many places that uh, people don't know about, and uh, they are not covered enough in um, in the country. Uh, we can see it in the, the north of uh, the West Bank, inside the West Bank, south of the West Bank, um, Hebron. Uh, we can see it. Um, and we have the siege of Gaza. We, the, we, we cannot forget that uh, this way to, um, um, yeah, to sanction, uh, like by a collective uh, punishment, sanction a whole people of two men, uh, a population of two million people, civilians in Gaza uh, by starving them to death. It's uh, like, it's horrible, you know? And we have seen also that I want to highlight in uh, 2018, 17 was the nation state bill that um, the Israeli government, they passed. And um, this actually gives, uh, like it says directly that it gives the, the unique right to self-determination is only unique to the Jewish people not uh, to the Israelis or people with Israeli passport. It's only unique to the people, uh, like uh, to the Jewish people. And uh, this gives also Israel, Israel gives themselves the right to actually continue the ethnic cleansing, continue um, the apartheid system that is going on and that have been going on for many years in the country. So thank you. So what's strange for me is that nearly everybody in the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia knows about the Holocaust, but very few people know about Nakba and the suffering of the Palestinian people, I guess, because there's a bias in the media. So both the Holocaust and Nakba are terrible human tragedies. Um, and it's difficult to ask this question, but is there a connection between the two, between Holocaust and Nakba? Maybe Daniel, do you want to tackle this one first? It's a horrible question. Yeah, this is a tough one um, because I don't wanna, I don't, I have to be careful not to undermine um, or reduce or even like, uh, use the Holocaust um, at the expense of uh, legitimate suffering of many Jews around the world. Um, there's a reason, I think, just to go back to your point that no one has heard of the Nakba. I think it has to do with a lot of things. One of them among them is, chiefly among them is, that 5 million or 6 million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. Um, thousands of Palestinians were killed during the Nakba. Um, so it's not really similar in that quantity, perhaps. Um, and But the, the problem is that in, while we cannot really quantify suffering and trauma and pain, uh, in many respects, the Nakba is the Holocaust of the Palestinians, i.e. it is the most uh, devastating and impactful and traumatic experience of the Palestinians akin to that Holocaust for the These are not similar, they're different, but it's, it's as tragic for the Palestinians as the Holocaust is tragic and um, impactful as it is for the Israelis or for Jews in general. Um, now, the connections between the two, and I think are very, very obvious to me in different ways. And thankfully, I'm, I'm very thankful for a lot of Jewish rabbis and Jewish uh, intellectuals and activists who have kind of helped us as Palestinians navigate what that looks like and to understand the, inter in the intersectionality of the Palestinian suffering and how it relates or how the Nakba relates to the Holocaust. So this is not coming from me, this is not me tokenizing or abusing the legacy of the Holocaust. This is something that we're hearing from Jews, Jewish intellectuals and theologians themselves. Um, now, historically speaking, the Holocaust led to the Nakba, and this is, this is very clear to me. Um, we see the influx, the massive influx, and the increase of the number of Jewish migrants into Palestine uh, during the Second World War. And especially right after the Holocaust, where like hundreds of thousands of Jews migrated into Palestine, eventually these Jews desire to have that independence that they wanted and that led to the declaration of independence and therefore to the to the Nakba. So these are not inseparable 
and we have to we have to recognize this that those who survived the Holocaust, that the descendants of the survivors and the survivors themselves initiated the 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 war and the conflict that led to the Palestinian massacre. Now this makes us this is a very sensitive issue where like where we're we're saying that the victims have become the victimizers, where those who were oppressed and, and horribly treated in Europe now have suddenly have become powerful and dominant, and this has to do a lot with colonialism uh, and how the West and especially the British Empire aided and abetted uh, the Jewish domination of over Palestine, and we still kind of suffer from that. So this is important for the British listeners here as well to understand how the British Empire has led to a lot of this. Uh, but now, now the traumatized and the victims have suddenly become those who are in power, who have been weaponized by the British and have been able to make, uh, assume control of Palestine, and they have led to the Palestinian uh, catastrophe, the Nakba. And it is the descendants of the Holocaust, for the most part, who led the massacres committed, uh, Yassin and the other kind of villages that were ethnically cleansed and the mass massacres of Palestinians. And so that's the one point it is that now the victim has become the victimizer. And that's a very uncomfortable kind of conversation to have, especially because Holocaust today, the Holocaust narrative has been weaponized. Um, one, to defend, to give a blanket support and defense of Israeli policies in Palestine. So whenever Palestinians have spoken up against Israeli aggression, and they have been continuously compared to uh, the Holocaust and the suffering of the Jews, and the and the memory of of, of Jews have been used to silence, and to character assassinate, and to um, vilify Palestinian activists and those who are selling Palestinians. Uh, so that is kind of the tragedy that the Holocaust has been become a weapon, and rather than us reflecting and for many reflecting on the Holocaust as this monumentous and pivot, pivot, pivot point for us to reflect on racism and on violence and on stereotyping. It's now been used to stereotype and vilify and attack and silence and even accuse Palestinians and their allies of being anti-Semitic because of the Holocaust. Um, now, thankfully, for, for our, you know, our Jewish friends uh, who are speaking up about this and they're saying not in our name, we refuse to that we use the memory of the Holocaust to turn a blind eye to the suffering of the Palestinians. And it's because of the legacy of the Holocaust, because of the legacy of the survivors and the victims of the Holocaust, Jews are saying, or many Jews, especially what we can call anti-Zionist Jews, are saying because of the Holocaust and because of our faith as Jews, uh, we refuse to uh, um, justify and victimize Palestinians. And because of the legacy of the Holocaust, what we have learned from the Holocaust is that it is awful, it is criminal to stereotype and to vilify and to attack and murder people because of their ethnicity and their background or their religion. And that's what happened to the Jews in Europe. And be, by the same token, in the same breath, we're saying just because, just because of the Holocaust, we need to stand against the victimization and the suffering of the Palestinians. So it's not, this is not a dual narrative. It's not us versus them. Because of the Holocaust, because of the abhorrent evil of anti-Semitism, we're saying the Israeli victimization of Palestinians, what Bilal said, the apartheid that has been practiced in Palestine, which is now known as a fact, and we have been saying this for years, and now it's been affirmed by human rights organizations globally, whether Israeli organizations like B'Tselem or other international ones like um, Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International. This is a system of apartheid. And it's because of the Holocaust, because of anti-Semitism. Our struggle against anti-Semitism, we're saying we have to reckon with the next one. We have to reckon with Israeli policies, and we have to stand for justice for the Palestinians. Um, so hopefully that can make sense, and hopefully it would help us also, one, as Palestinians also, and this is very hard for us as Palestinians, to also reckon with the trauma and the pain of the Holocaust, and how that informs the psyche and the act and the action of Israel today. Um, but also to use the Holocaust and to learn from the Holocaust in standing up for justice for Palestinians. And that's where this is where Jews and Palestinians come, come together in their defense of, of rights and equality and justice for the Palestinians, as well as security and, and rights for the Jews, uh, whether uh, in Palestine, Israel, or also. So the intersectionality is there. And 
and thankfully we have been able to connect and 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 not kind of meet on that bridge in our fight and struggle against racism. So whether it's anti-Semitism, whether, whether it's anti-Palestinianism, whether it's racism in different forms and shapes, all of us are united in the struggle against injustice. Uh, and that deals with, that engages with the Nakba, and that also engages with other forms of anti-Semitism. And both of us are united in that we should be at least united, that not in our name, and we need to stand against racism in any, any way, um, shape, and form it comes. So thank you, Daniel. Is there anything you want to add, Bilal? No, I think it's uh, very well covered. Like, I, I, I would say that um, uh, for the international community, it's actually the responsibility to stand up for any people who get oppressed. They didn't stand up for uh, during the Holocaust because it took place actually in Europe. But we have seen that they, they stood up uh, against the apartheid regime in South Africa. And right now we are actually seeing that the international community and the governments are standing up for the Ukrainian people. And this is actually a very good example that boycott and sanctions is very effective and it could be very, very effective and could lead to results, you know. This is actually a textbook uh, example of a BDS campaign, what is happening in, uh, against Russia. So uh, I think that, and when we are comparing like Ukraine with Palestine, Ukraine, it's just a few months ago that uh, the crisis started. But uh, the Palestinians have been living under this occupation and oppression for 74 years. So uh, we have, uh, like, as Europeans, as the international community, there is a very big responsibility towards the Palestinians and towards any people who get oppressed. So what I'm hearing, in a way, is you saying human rights for all people, of without exceptions. Of course, without okay. exceptions. Both of you are saying that. So for our listeners, the Amnesty International report that uh, compared the occupation to apartheid um, was published uh, the 1st of February this year, and it's going to be in the program notes so you can look it up. And there's an executive summary of that. So you don't have to read the whole report to, to sense um, Amnesty's human rights criticism of what's happening to Palestinians at this time. Daniel, um, it's a surprise to perhaps many of us that there are both Muslim and Christian Palestinians. Uh, here you are, born in Jerusalem, uh, lived and grew up in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, by the way, is where my wife and I became engaged. So we're part of this story. So can you please tell us something about the continuing presence over centuries of Palestine, Palestinian Christians. Um, yeah, thanks for the question. Of that, sorry. Yeah, no, that's very good. Um, just a quick uh, point um, that if it's surprising, why it is surprising that we that we know about Arab Christians or Palestinian Christians. Um, this has to do with very ignorant naive understanding of the East. It has to do with colonialism or with Western imperialism where the West sees itself in opposition to um, the East and the East is conceived or imagined to be Muslim or to be Arab or to be violent. And so when, when, you, when you talk about Arab Christians or Palestinian Christians, like we complicate the story. And in the West, in the kind of colonial Western imagination, it, it's, you would rather have it simple. Black and white, we are the we are the good guys. These are the bad guys. Um, so a lot of that ignorance is coming from that um, imperial colonial mentality uh, of us versus them. Now, uh, yeah, this is so. It should not be surprising. Like it should not be surprising that there are Palestinian Christians or that we have Arab Christians. Um, actually, we have we have had um, thriving and. and uh, incredible communities of Christians living in the middle of, since the beginning of Christianity. And actually, uh, I say this rhetorically, but I am a descendant of the Church of Pentecost, the, the Church of Jerusalem in Acts. Uh, that the, the, the church, the Palestinian church, 
from Jerusalem was the first church. And we continue, and we have been, and we continue to be the descendants of the first church of Pentecost. And Christianity, if anything, is an Eastern religion. It began in Palestine and spread. And my ancestors um, are those who shared the gospel with, you know, Western, you know, your ancestors in the West. Because actually Christianity comes from Palestine. It should not be surprising to anyone that there is a church in Palestine or in Egypt or in Lebanon or in Syria or in Iraq. And these, these countries continue to have um, very important Christian communities. Um, now, since, and maybe perhaps, I guess my religious identity relates to the Nakba identity, to the Nakba event, insofar as uh, Palestinian Christians used to be 10% or 11% of the population of Palestine in the early 20th century. And they, they were very, they were, they were very well off, educated, and, and played a significant role in uh, the rise of Arab nationalism and Palestinian nationalism and in literature and arts and, and so on and so forth. But with the establishment of the state of Israel and with the catastrophe of the Nakba, many Palestinian Christians opted out. Um, of course, they were forced to leave. So, and Bilal might know more about this than I do. There are a number, there's at least I can think of two refugee camps in Lebanon that are predominantly Christian, and Christian Palestinians living in, in these, in these uh, refugee camps. Uh, a lot of them moved to Jordan, and so there's a sizable Palestinian Christian Jordanian population that existed in, in, in Jordan. And also a lot of them moved also to Europe and, and to the US, and especially also Latin America. There's a, a very sizable minority of Arab Christians, Palestinian Christians in, in, in Latin American countries, I can think of Bolivia and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it is surprising insofar as it is a result of what could happen to the Palestinians in the and for 10% to now uh, go down to now our numbers in, in Palestine are about 2% 2, 2 of the population. So we're talking about a significant drop in the numbers. And, and that has huge ramifications on the identity of Palestine, on the struggle for Palestine, um, especially because Israel has been successful in uh, clouding and obfuscating the reality of the ground and making the conflict be a religious one between Jews and Muslims. And it was never a religious conflict between Jews and Muslims. It's been a very ethnocentric and very racist conflict between Jewish hegemony and control and domination over the whole population of Palestinians, whether it's Palestinian Christians or Palestinian, Jews, uh, Palestinian Muslims or Palestinian Christians. Um, but then by silencing or ignoring uh, Palestinian Christians, it makes that narrative work for the Western imagination to think, okay, this is a religious conflict. Muslims are scary and weird and different than us. We, we adopt a Jewish, a Judeo-Christian uh, legacy. So therefore we have to stand with Jews. And this kind of explains a lot of the North American support for Israel uh, in the US and Canada, and also in many parts of the world because of that kind of racist identity uh, politics that has been used to justify the colonization, at least, or turn a blind eye to the suffering of the Palestinians. So hopefully that helps. Um, also, there's a bit of Christian Zionism that plays a role in this, and how Christian Zionists have been trying effectively um, to paint that narrative as well, and to force that uh, biblical interpretation to frame the, con the, con the con conversation and the conflict in terms of Old Testament um, um, tropes, uh, a conflict between Isaac and Ishmael, a conflict between Arabs and Jews. Um, and by doing so, they kind of ignore the presence of a Palestinian Christian. But that's also another kind of messy uh, kind of forms to deal with. And I will just kind of finish here brief, briefly, maybe I'm uh, spending too much time on this. Um, Israel just announced, I think a few days ago, like two days ago, that they would want to limit the participation of Christians Palestinian Christians in uh, Easter celebrations in Jerusalem. I think they limited the number to uh, 500 Christians who were able to actually go into the church for Passion, uh, for Passion Week, for Good Friday and, and Sunday and so on and so forth. And the church has spoken out against this and they refuse uh, this uh, uh, kind of way to control worship and celebration of Easter. Um, so this is kind of one, one more example of how the, the the conflict or the, the struggle, the Palestinian struggle has to be framed in terms of 
uh, racism and apartheid against Jews, uh, sorry, against Palestinian Christians and against Palestinian Muslims. So thank you, Daniel. So um, I like the story of you descended from the Jerusalem church 2000 years ago. That's a very good story and a good reminder to me and to our listeners that um, the Jesus movement was first of all a Palestinian movement. So I want to just ask another Christian question to Daniel. Excuse me, Bill Al, <laughs> doing that. Um, so tell us a little bit about your own Christian commitment. Um, and uh, what denomination do you belong to? Who are you influenced by and so on? So I, I belong to, uh, historically speaking, I'm a Greek Orthodox. My family, the Banura family, is an Orthodox family. The, the vast, the, historically speaking, the majority of Palestinians, Palestinian Christians are come from the Greek Orthodox Church, so from the Orthodox, the local Eastern Church of the Levant. Um, I, my, as, as of now, I identify as Protestant. My, actually, my father is a, is a Baptist pastor. Uh, I had been attending the Lutheran Church for the last, uh, before moving back to the U.S., um, had been uh, attending the Lutheran Church in Bethlehem, the Christmas Lutheran Church in Bethlehem. Uh, so I identify mostly as Protestant, uh, influenced heavily by Mennonites and Mennonite thinking. Uh, growing up, I was heavily impacted by the writings of John Yoder, and more recently by a person called Stanley Hauerwas at Duke Divinity. Um, very influenced by pacifism and kind of the ethic, ethics of the kingdom uh, and nonviolence and pacifism. Uh, but yeah, so I, I hold that complex identity of someone who is uh, historically orthodox, identifying as Protestant, but even within my Protestant identity, it's a very um, confusing one. Uh, I'm, very, I'm very interested in the ecumenical conversation unity of the church and how we find in our diversity ways for us to unite together and, and, and celebrate the beauty and diversity of the faith versus adopting a very specific uh, ecclesial or denominational kind of identity up and against other ones. Uh, so I think that's an important kind of move we have to also make in this day and age um, to celebrate our diversity and engage in healthy conversations and also uh, fellowship together within that. But that's uh, yeah, that's another conversation for a different time. So thank you. So I like the fact you're influenced by the Anabaptists, this pacifist movement, this historic peace church. And uh, I, I've been to the, um, Jewel and I went to the uh, a Lutheran service in a Lutheran church in the old city in Jerusalem. And uh, it was a, a wonderful sermon. So uh, we were, uh, really inspired by that. Let me ask, uh, move us on now to uh, talk about political scientists like Samuel P. Huntington, who in the 1990s wrote about the clash of civilizations. This includes a clash of religious cultures. So according to this perspective, Israelis and Palestinians can never have peace because of the ancient an unresolvable tension between Jews, Muslims, and Christians in the Holy Land. Is this true? Is this conflict about religion? Bilal, do you want to start this easy question? <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, actually, this is actually like when we look at what's happening, we are, we are seeing forced displacement of Palestinians. We are seeing the ethnic cleansing. We are seeing the status quo where we see a situation where Jewish-only housing, Jewish-only roads, color-coded license plates, um, we are seeing people who are actually fighting for basic human rights. They are fighting for the right to the access to water, the right to access to elec electricity, uh, the right to have a free movement, uh, for the freedom of movement in their own country. We are like uh, it, it's actually a military occupation that uh, that is that the fight is going is about it's nothing to do with the religion 
And I can tell you, if I was living in a house and my own brother, who was a Muslim, who would come and kick me out from my house, I would resist. I would struggle against him. And I will try to kick him out again in order to get my own right. Uh, so it's nothing to do with religion. It's just, in my opinion, just by accident that it's actually between some Jews, some, not all of them, because the most of the Jews are not uh, Israelis. Uh, we have many other Jews living all around the world, you know. And uh, we have also in the Israeli army, we have also uh, Arabs uh, with Muslim background uh, doing military service in uh, the Israeli army. And we as Palestinians, we, get, we consider them as uh, enemy because they are actually helping the occupiers to occupy, to oppress us, you know. Um, so it's not about uh, religion. I can understand why uh, the Zionist movement tried to, um, uh, try to uh, promote uh, this cause as a religious fight and the religious uh, disagreement, if we can say, because it's, if, we, uh, if we read the, um, uh, the independence declaration of the state of Israel, it was only about uh, religion. It was only about the Jewish people, the promised land, uh, and uh, that they are coming back after 2,000 two years. It is as if that uh, God is a real estate agent. Uh, when you, they go to Sheikh Jarrah and say that this house, it belonged to us 2,000 years ago. Well, this house didn't exist 2,000 years ago. <laughs> it's only 50 years ago it existed, you know? Um, I don't really have anything to say to that. And uh, I can also talk maybe a little bit about my personal relation with like when, and my experience when I was living in Palestine. Um, like it's maybe one of the very, very few places in the Middle East I have been living in Egypt, in Lebanon, and in Palestine, it's one of the very few places in the Middle East where you can't see any difference between a Palestinian Christian and Palestinian Muslim. I have actually friends that I have slept by and been in their houses, and I still cannot tell you if they are Muslim or Christians. And uh, this is actually a very good thing because it's not an issue. We see our which we see each each other as humans and what connects us is actually our love for Palestine and the human values. So thank you. Let me, and I think uh, um, you would agree with, with uh, Bilal on this, Daniel, right? That it's not about religion. You said that once to me, it's about um, the occupation, about a military occupation. So let's yeah, for sure. I mean, this is, I think this is very, very evident. Um, Israel would like to, I mean, Israel and the Zionist apologists would love to frame it as a religious conflict uh, because it, it knows and they know that framing it in that way is, is impactful and powerful for the West and, and helps uh, justifying and whitewashing, uh, whitewashing apartheid and, and racism and violence, for sure. Um, and like I said, you know, many Jews are saying this is not acceptable, not in our name. Many Christians, like myself, like many, like most Christian Palestinians, and like many Christians in the West, were standing up to this and saying and refusing to weaponize the Bible and weaponize uh, faith uh, to vilify and attack and, and be violent towards Muslims. Uh, so for sure, I mean, this is something we have to be aware of and, and fight against it. And, and fundamentally, our struggle is against racism is against apartheid, is against the dispossession, disenfranchisement uh, uh, of Palestinians and the reclamation of their rights and their freedoms and their liberty per international law and UN resolutions and so on and so forth. So this is not a religious issue. It's, an, it's, a, it's a moral issue fundamentally and, and it's, a, it's a legal issue of rights and, and dignity and, and so on and so forth. And if you want to use religion, then let's use religion properly and let's read the Bible properly. Uh, and as our theology is our reading the Bible driven by racism and us versus them and by some kind of particular 
very flawed and very problematic readings of the text that try to, tries to wedge um, uh, between people? Or is it driven by uh, a vision of creating a beloved community, creating uh, a, a good news, a gospel of truth and goodness and life for everyone, and not just Jews versus Palestinians, and not just uh, uh, Christians against others, but having a universal vision of, of worth and justice and peace that is grounded in biblical mandates about justice and only justice, about seeking justice and loving mercy, about uh, Peaceability with everyone, and and, and loving the enemy, and, and a sense of restoration, and a vision of rest, a prophetic sense of restoration and wholeness that the Bible proclaims. So if that's our how we read the text. Yes, please use the Bible. Please use your faith. And Jews and Muslims and Christians can find plenty in their traditions to emphasize these issues of justice and equality and freedom and dignity. Um, but we should not, we dare not use the Bible and use religion to justify violence and hate and, um, and, and war. And that's what's been happening by many. Uh, and that's what many have been doing to justify the colonization and the apartheid of Palestine. So let me come to a final question now. Thank you for sharing so much already. So what can friends and members of Community of Christ do to help move things forward to a just peace in Israel-Palestine uh, so that Israelis and Palestinians, Muslims, Christians, and Jews all have dignity and a good future for their children with peace and justice. So what can we do in Britain, in the United States, in Europe, in Australia? Bilal, do you want to go first? Okay, I can go first. Uh, I think... Um... The simple answer is to keep talking about Palestine, keep speaking about Palestine. There are many events happening, uh, many campaigns. Uh, there are so many issues that we can uh, speak about right now that are very, very, very actual. So I think that people should keep speaking about Palestine, keep focusing about Palestine. Um, if you go to a supermarket, look at the dates that you are buying from the supermarket, if they're Israeli or not, um, go to your workers' union uh, and see if there's any investments in Israeli, uh, in any companies that are complicit in uh, the Israeli settlement buildings. Um, work like um, try to uh, vote at your mun municipality elections and uh, the governmental elections for uh, people who will who are seeking justice and will uh, speak out about, uh, against the oppression of Palestinians. Uh, try to put the Pal Palestine on the agenda um, in any way possible. Uh, I think this is something that will help. Another thing that I would encourage people to do is to come to Palestine, visit Palestine. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many things to experience uh, maybe Daniel and I could speak for hours, but it's not the same when you go to Palestine and experience it. When you go to Jerusalem, when you go to Hebron, when you go to Bethlehem, when you go to Nablus, when you go to Haifa and, Nas and, and uh, Nazareth, you know. So I would re really encourage people to go there. There are so many good Palestinian uh, activists, organizations, human rights organizations, guides that would be so happy to speak to you and uh, also inform you about uh, what's happening. Visit the families there try to connect with the Palestinians in all levels. Uh, I think this is something that could make a difference. And uh, this is also something that is, uh, that, that gives the feeling for us as Palestinians that we are recognized and we have actually some people who are, have uh, solidarity with us and uh, ready to uh, support us in our struggle against the occupation. So thank you. So um, in 2014, Jules and I went on a, a study tour with Churches for Middle East Peace based in Washington, DC. Eight days, we had a Palestinian guide and we had an Israeli guide. And we visited activists on the West Bank and activists in Israel 
it was a wonderful trip. So I do recommend uh, a dual narrative tour and Churches for Middle East Peace um, uh, may be a good place to start. Um, uh, one of our friends from France joined us. So you can go on their tours where, wherever you uh, live. So Daniel, what can we do? Um, there's so much you can do. I, I for sure second uh, what Bilal said. You need to, uh, what we, we, we put it this way, come and see and then go and tell. Come to Palestine, see what life is like and then go and, and, and speak about what's happening. Um, so that's the kind of basic thing you can do. Uh, secondly, you can educate yourself. You have a lot of privilege. You have a lot of access to resources, to information, to books, to the internet. There's a lot out there. So you have no excuse uh, to be uh, ignorant or naive or apathetic about this issue. Um, so there's, there's, there's a work that we can do to educate yourself and to understand what's happening. And if anything that, that Bilal and I said, like, for example, when we use the words like apartheid or ethnic cleansing, these words are not coming out of There are many books, many reports written on this stuff. Um, so do your due diligence and can go to the deal with the issue in good faith and try to understand what you're saying. So come and see, uh, educate yourself. And also use your resources, whether financially to support uh, Palestinian organizations. Bilal mentioned some. Uh, there's, there's phenomenal organizations doing incredible work, whether in response to the occupation, to the military, and to the racism that we deal with, but also incredible organizations that do amazing work among women, children, refugees, and so on. Fantastic organizations all over Palestine. Um, also, if you're more in the more theologically inclined and more interested in supporting ministries and, and Christian organizations or or Muslim organizations or even Jewish organizations, there's a fantastic work and there's a fantastic network of organizations doing that work on the ground. And lastly, I would say you need to examine your theology. You need to know, like, you need to reassess. Uh, how you read the Bible and how you have been using the Bible. And if you've been using the Bible to justify violence and to turn a blind eye and to whitewash the suffering of the Palestinians, I think, and if you're using the Bible to do, the, to do so, I think you need to stop a bit and re-examine these presuppositions and these uh, kind of exegetical moves you're making and try to read the Bible in a way that actually is bringing, that brings about life and goodness and justice rather than, um, a continuation of the the hurt and the suffering and the trauma of the Palestinians. Um, so there's a lot that we can do. And then on, on the more activistic way or the activist way, write your representative, uh, go on demonstrations, connect with Palestine-focused organizations in North America or wherever you are, and uh, educate your church you know, members about what's happening. Um, influence the public discourse about this issue. So, so, so much that can be done. Um, so yes, I mean, we, Bilal and I can share our story and our uh, narratives and so on, but really we need you to come alongside us and help in the struggle that we're, you know, we're dealing with in the struggle for freedom and justice. So thank you. So thank you, Bilal, for joining us from Denmark. And thank you, Daniel, from, for joining us from Notre Dame in Indiana, for helping us uh, understand in a better way Nakba Day. And to you, our listeners, we hope this podcast helps you understand a little of the suffering that comes from the continuing occupation of Palestinians by Israel. Quoting Psalm uh, 122, verse 6, I invite our listeners to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the peace of the Holy Land. Continue to find out, as Daniel has said, as Bilal has said, what's going on from reliable news sources. And perhaps one book I might recommend is The Other Side of the Wall, a Palestinian Christian narrative of lament and hope by Muntha Isaac, who's academic dean of the Bethlehem Bible College in Palestine, and director currently of the Christ of the Checkpoint Conference. I'm currently reading that book. And details of the book are in the notes for this podcast. This is Grounds for Peace, part of Project Zion Podcast. I'm Andrew Bolton. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to you, Bilal and Daniel, for sharing with us.
Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.